This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Your Money on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Your Money, Series XM, Channel 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ken Smethers, professor here in Philadelphia. We are uh, still taping shows by Zoom, uh, if so we're not taking live calls. But if you're looking for a fee-only advisor I'd like, you can still go to my website, kentonmoney.com. And although... Um, some of you may be spending less thanks to limits on activity and social distancing and things like that during this pandemic. Uh, uh, most of us, uh, or many of us, are not necessarily saving more money. In fact, the new report by bankrate.com shows that many Americans couldn't cover some basic uh, unexpected emergency expenses. And my guest today returning to the show is Greg McBride, who is a senior vice president and chief financial analyst for bankrate.com, where he provides analysis and advice on his uh, personal, on personal finance um, as part of their Money Makeover series. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Great to be with you, Ken. Thanks for having me. And so recently you released a, a study that you guys did where you did a survey and um, and that's related to uh, how much people could, uh, how many people could afford to uh, spend in terms of unexpected, uh, uh, unexpected emergency expense, or you know, whether medical or non-medical or anything like that. So you know, let's talk about the one thousand dollar threshold you guys use. You looked at, yes, a lot of people. What you know, what is your ability to to handle one thousand dollars of unplanned expenses as a car repair, emergency bill, and so forth? I mean, that's not necessarily a lot of money. But what did you guys find? Uh, what we found, Kent, was that uh, only thirty nine percent of Americans could cover that unplanned expense of a thousand dollars out of their savings, and almost an equal percentage, thirty eight percent, would need to borrow the money in some way. Uh, so, it, you know, I think it continues to show that, you know, the, the weak condition and in some cases precarious condition uh, many Americans' finances are, that there's just not a whole lot of uh, cushion when unplanned expenses or events, uh, as we've seen in 2020, arise. Yeah, and certainly the Federal Reserve has done studies like this as well, and it found fairly similar numbers. But how does this compare to recent years, you know, prior to that pandemic, you know, whether people could afford these out-of-pocket kind of emergency expenses? Well, I think at first blush, we might have expected it to be down very sharply uh, from uh, previous years, given the pandemic and the economic fallout from that high levels of unemployment, uh, people having to shut down businesses. Uh, what we did find, though, it was down, uh, but only slightly uh, from where we had been the past couple of years. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that as devastating as 2020 was to the finances of millions of Americans, uh, there were millions more that actually did boost savings last year. Yeah. Uh, fortunate enough to keep working, um, but you know, through the curtailment of, of travel and entertainment expenses uh, and things like stimulus payments, people were able to pad the savings. Net, net, it was down from the previous years, but not as bad as I think we might have assumed or expected uh, coming in. 
Yeah, and by down, you mean uh, how many people could afford uh, uh, those emergency expenses. And so, you know, it, it, we've seen this year, you, meant, you mentioned the stimulus uh, package, so the CARES Act and other uh, direct payments. Is, is We've actually seen credit scores tick up a little bit because it looks like, you know, in some cases, those stimulus payments were even better than what some people were making, especially with unemployment benefits being topped up and, and so forth. So it is... Um, yeah, interesting, and we'll see how that plays out with additional stimulus if that happens or, or not. So let's talk about, you know, this one, next question may seem obvious, like, like who is least likely to be able to, to cover these you know, unexpected emergency expenses from saving? Presumably it's people low savings, you know, less wealthy people. But, you know, what, what kind of, you know, interesting uh, caveats did you find there? Well, much like the pandemic itself, uh, where the economic fallout has kind of skewed toward younger and lower income households, we see the same here with regard to those uh, least able to absorb that unplanned expense uh, of $1,000. Only about a third of millennials could cover that expense uh, out of their savings. Now, there's not a whole lot of generational bragging rights here because even among Gen sure. X and baby boomers, it's still fewer than half. So it was higher, but but still not in great shape either. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned some people will, 38% need to borrow it to cover expense like that. Where are they going for borrowing? Is it credit cards, family? What are the sources? Yeah, credit cards tops the list. Uh, about 18% said they would need to put it on a credit card and pay it off over time. 12% uh, said they'd borrow from family members or friends, and about 8% said uh, they would have to take out a, a personal loan to cover that expense. Yeah, and it's, you know, and the, and the credit card, that I'll tell you, that's an expensive way to go, although some people would say borrowing from family can also be an expensive way to go, not necessarily in terms of the interest rate, but in a lot of that pressure and, uh, and, and so forth and the embarrassment or, or, or whatever associated with that. But nonetheless, um, you know, both both are pretty uh, uh, costly. So, you know, what are other ways that, you know, mathematically, it's either you, you have to borrow the money or you, you, you know, bring down your saving a, a little bit. Have people, however, do they respond with other things? Like maybe they'll try to go out and get extra work or pick up some Uber, you know, assignments, things like that. It related to that, yeah, people did say about one in five said that they would reduce their spending on other things uh, in order yeah. to cover that expense. And, you know, this was up um, relative to what we had seen in past years. And, and I view that as, as a vestige of 2020 in the sense that, like, you know, for a lot of households that you know, they had gone, you know, much of the year without, you know, certain types of expenditures or without, you know, the typical fun outings or or weekend trips or whatever the case may be. Right. And in response to that, people are like, well, you know, I managed to do without that long enough. I guess I could cut back or do without it longer if I needed to in the event of an unplanned expense. So I think I think that reality maybe has dawned on more people that, you know, there there is an area where they could cut back their spending if need be. Yeah, I know. I think that's a great point. Even my wife and I've noticed that we've unintentionally zeroed out our vacation budget. You know? <laughs> past year there's no place to go so um you know things like that there's always you know uh, not always but typically there are things that uh, people can uh, cut back on 
um, and this experience obviously has, has shown them that. Um, it, it, so looking ahead, you know, there's just always this thing about the new year. Thank, everybody's talking about, thank goodness, 2020 is behind us and 2021 is before us. Now, warning people <laughs> that they we're not going to get even close to the vaccine levels of distribution at three million a day is what's really needed to get the herd immunity, you know, by, you know, early fall, you know, this year, late summer. Um, we're probably not going to get close to that. So 2021 could still be a rough year. But nonetheless, uh, you guys were doing this in early January, the survey. What are people's attitudes toward 2021? Are they a little more optimistic, pessimistic? I imagine, you know, <laughs> it's hard to go too much down from 2020. Yeah, I think the numbers bear that out. I mean, what we found uh, is, you know, I think, you know, in, in most years, people more or less say their finances are basically going to stay the same. And you know, it's the, you know, is it going to get better? Is it going to get worse? Is on the margin. I mean, we, we've looked at that sort of thing for years, and that's the typical pattern. What we saw this year, significantly different. Uh, those that were optimistic uh, that this is going to be a better year for their finances outnumbered those that were pessimistic by a three to one margin. And that is, is very uncharacteristic. But again, I, I think that's to your point that, you know, it's, it's not that everybody feels like it's all going to be sunshine and daffodils in 2021 as much as for, you know, there's the realization that, well, last year was the bad year. This is going to be the year to get back on track. You know, people that were out of work for a period yeah. in 2020, you know, they, they can get back to work. They can start to rebuild their, their finances uh, and get back on track to, to where they had been, say, early of 2020 before the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did that optimism, you know, vary a lot by age and income, or it, was it pretty uh, level across the board? It, it did vary. Uh, you know, what we did see is that uh, the, that optimism tends to wane with age. Um, I mm. guess we do get cranky in our old age. Um, oh, I I know from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, millennials were most optimistic, and then we just we would see it decline with each subsequent uh, age bracket from there. Uh, and on the basis of income, not a real surprise, but you know, as income increased, that tended to feed uh, higher levels of optimism. So higher earning households more optimistic than lower earning households. Not a big surprise, but I think particularly when you look in the context of the pandemic, where the financial fallout, job losses, and income reductions and disruptions did tend to fall more harshly on lower income households. Yeah, yeah. And then finally, you know, this, where we started from is, you know, a lot of households could not afford $1,000 on planned, you know, expenses. How do we get, you know, households engaged in more of that precautionary saving, um, that nest egg for, unplanned expenses. I mean, we, you know, financial advisors say that's kind of step number one here, making sure you have that three to six months worth of expenses. And now, you know, maybe due to the pandemic and other things that's been tweaking up to closer to six months to nine months of, you know, expenses just in case. And, you know, for many advisors, that's even more important to get even get that 401k match, uh, or, you know, or, or at least it's tied with that one, um, the free money from the 401k match. Um, it, it's, but the question is, you know, how do we actually get households to do that? And, then, and you kind of alluded to something earlier, and that is a lot of households say, well, I can't afford to do that. And then my response to them is, listen, I grew up well below the poverty line. 
I mean, and my parents figured out a way that came up with a little bit of a nest egg just in case those things happen. So they could have said, yes, we could we could afford that thousand dollars in unplanned expenses, despite being quite a bit below the, the government's uh, poverty rate. Um, and so then it seems like there are places, a lot of houses, maybe not every household, but a lot of houses could cut back on to try to build up a little bit nest egg. And then, of course, we want to make sure that they don't get tempted with that thing sitting there in a checking account, maybe an online savings account, a little, little uh, cognitive dissonance there to keep it you know, uh, a little bit harder to spend down. But what are some thoughts there on how, how we can encourage uh, that type of precautionary savings? Well, too often, I mean, it, it's not that the, the idea of emergency savings is new to people. We saw after coming out right. of the financial crisis, there was, the needle really moved in terms of people realizing this is very important. I know I'm way behind yeah. and I know I've, I've, you know, this, I have catching up to do. Now, despite a decade long economic expansion, we really didn't see the needle move very much in terms of people actually mm. being followed through on that. And again, it's not that people were, you know, sort of dismissive of it or, or, or ignorant of the benefits. People knew it. People knew they were behind and they knew they had work to do. So why didn't they actually make progress on building up savings? And I think the biggest thing is if you wait until the end of the month and try to save what's left over, nothing's left over. Yeah. And even when there is, yeah. there's no consistency to that from one month to the next. And so I'm just a big believer that uh, successful saving is all about the habit. And how do you form that habit? Yeah. Well, start by paying yourself first. Automate it. Have a direct deposit from your paycheck into a dedicated savings account. That way, the savings happens before you even roll out of bed on payday morning. Uh, and so what happens is yeah. you start to build that up over time. When unplanned expenses come along, you're only one paycheck away from beginning the process of replenishing. That. So you know, I think that's really, really important. And then there's a lot of other sort of like, you know, different habits or tricks that you can you know, engage in to, to kind of put yourself in more of a mindset of saving, you know, rounding up uh, to, to the next dollar with, uh, you know, my, that money, sure. saving those kind of things. But, you know, at the end of the day, I really think it's you know, establishing that habit, automating it as much as possible. That's really how you get the ball rolling. And, and as that ball rolls downhill and you start to pick up some momentum on saving, I think that makes it easier for people to begin to think more like savers and less like spenders. Yeah, I completely agree with you on the automation point. I mean, for many years, financial advisors are like, well, now you have to keep a budget. And, you know, the fact of the matter is budget fatigue sets in around February. You know, it's, it's a great idea. I'm going to start budgeting come in January. And it never lasts for very long. But if you instead just automate your saving, that's part of that, you know, precautionary saving. Hopefully that, that money doesn't stay in your checking account, but goes to maybe an online savings account, a little separated, a little higher interest rate. And then your automate your retirement saving. Of course, that gets deducted you know, hopefully directly from your paycheck. Um, then at the end of the day, I almost don't care what you spend your money on. You know, as long as you can pay your bills and you have a buffer stock for, for saving, you're saving for retirement, maybe kids' college if that's in the works. Um, who cares what you spend your money? You don't have to be counting those lattes and, and so forth. But uh, are you kind of on the same page there? You don't need a budget uh, your spending as much as provided you have your you you've automated your spending or your, well, I your do saving? think it leads to kind of more that you know the ability to 
spend and, and maybe do so in a guilt-free manner, knowing that you, you did the saving right, right off the top. The other thing is you get yeah. what a stress reliever it is knowing you've got some money put away for a rainy day. Uh, you know, there are a few things in yeah. life that help you sleep better at night than knowing that you've got that money put away in the event that the, you know, something unexpected were to happen. And so, you know, I think it, in, in both cases that it, it's almost liberating in the sense that, you know, it does free you up in terms of relieving stress off your mind. It frees you up in terms of how you think about spending and, you know, whether or not you, you know, allow yourself to spend or, or feel guilty about spending in certain areas. I think it relieves a lot of those burdens if you do the saving on the front end. Yeah, no, I, and I completely agree. Probably with one of the most controversial pieces ever, well, at least the thing I gave several thousand comments to was, you know, why you, why you don't need to count your lattes. <laughs> it's that guilt-free, once you've, once you've saved, you don't really need to just be counting everything. Uh, because like you said, you, you know, you've, it's guilt free at that point because you've done the right things elsewhere. And, you know, that peace of mind, better night's sleep, better productivity, if it, it just works in a, a real virtuous uh, cycle. So Greg, once again, fantastic jobs. You're super articulate in these concepts. Thanks so much for coming back. Always a show. pleasure, Kent. Thanks so much for having me. And you can read more about Greg and his articles at the bankrate.com website. You can follow him on Twitter by simply his handle is at bankrategreg. Again, at bankrategreg. And I'm Ken Smothers. This is Your Money. Remember, you can connect with me on my website, kent.money.com. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.